Welcome to Modern Ancestral Mamas, a podcast for mamas created by mamas. We discuss ancestral food, cooking, feeding our families, and holistic living with the everyday modern mom. We are Corey and Christine, two mamas on a mission to nourish our families holistically while keeping it real in today's crazy world. Follow us on this adventure and enjoy the stories and information we share. Today's episode is sponsored by the Nurtured Foundations online course. The Nurtured Foundations course is a podcast style course to teach parents how to start solids with their baby. Are you a parent with a child from zero to 24 months? Well, then this online course is for you. This is a comprehensive course that empowers parents to start solid foods in a confident and safe way and raise adventurous and healthy eaters from the start. We cover topics such as when to start solids, the most nutrient-dense foods to feed your babies, recipes, troubleshooting, how to prevent picky eating, and so much more. If you want information on this course, go to nourishthelittles.com and click on the link Nurtured Foundations online course. You can also find a link to the Nurtured Foundations online course on my Instagram bio. Click on the link and look for Nurtured Foundations online course. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Modern Ancestral Mamas. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us today and listen to today's episode. So as some of you guys know, if you are, if you've been listening for a while, we've had an advertisement running at the beginning of the podcast. And this advertisement is for the Nurtured Foundations Feeding Baby course. And this is for an online course that I created along with my colleague, Leah Foreman, who is an occupational therapist and pediatric feeding specialist. And in this course, we talk all about starting solids with your baby, and we go all the way up to age two. And so we answer all your burning questions about how to start solids, what are the most nutrient-dense foods, how to prevent picky eating, uh, everything that you can possibly want to know, and it comes with a cookbook. Highly recommend you guys check it out. But we've been dying to get Leah onto the show to actually talk to us about feeding babies and uh, occupational therapy and stuff like that. So that is our guest for today. And I wanted to give you guys a little bit of a funny story about this, but Leah and I have actually never met in real life. (laughs) Um, We were connected via another Instagram friend and the way, you know, the world happens in, you know, with social media and stuff. um, We kind of interacted through this mutual friend. And when I started, uh, when I was interested in making this course, I realized I really wanted the input of an occupational therapist, specifically someone who was interested and um, an expert in feeding babies. And so this is why I reached out to Leah and thankfully she wanted to do it with me and this is where we are today. So um, just a quick little bio, Leah is a doctor of occupational therapy and she is a feeding specialist. She lives in Colorado and with her son and her husband and her dogs. 
And Leah, what else do you want to tell us? What else can I tell you? Hello, everyone. Well, since I don't think I've updated you, we have chickens now, too. So I have to add chickens to that list. Oh, my gosh. That's so cool. I know. I know. The dogs don't eat the chickens? Well, I could go on for a little bit on that. So, no, they don't hang out together. No, I don't trust my dogs with my chickens. The one got a hold of the one when we first got them, and the one doesn't lay eggs anymore, but she's still with us. So I've got four. I've got four, but only three lay. But, you know, she's still with us. So, um, And then we'll double our our flock next year, and they've just been a joy. So I have to decide if we're going to do chicks or not next year it's a big commitment but i think my son will be into it by then it was like can we do chicks with a baby no i'm not going to do chicks with an infant um so we got pullets (laughs) which are like teenage chickens so that's like a short little update on my life so yeah that family list has grown (laughs) by four chickens um yeah what else can i tell you You did a great job yeah we live in colorado um i own and, and work through a practice here in colorado with a small team of occupational therapists Um, Most of us are feeding specialists or training to become feeding specialists. So um, while we're all occupational therapists, we all um, also have that specialty um, of feeding therapy as well and work with kids, um, you know, from a range of, you know, solely just picky eating, expanding that food repertoire and working on oral motor skills all the way to complex medical feeding, G-tube weaning, um, you know, working on passing a swallow study if we're aspirating, um, which means, you know, fluids going into the lungs things like that. So um, feeding therapy from all angles, really that whole spectrum of feeding concerns. So um, we love what we do. I love what we do. And we're just honored that families allow us into their lives and to their homes. We're a mobile practice. We don't have a brick and mortar clinic. So we go into homes. So we're all in home and telehealth. Yeah. Which I love because kids and families are more comfortable in their natural context of the home. Um, I've worked in clinics. There's nothing wrong with clinics. Um, However, I just love that in-home context and model. Families are more comfortable and um, I just love it. That's the service model that we love and use. That's really cool. So um, yeah, because then kids are are able, I mean, are you, are you, I'm sorry, you're, are you feeding, like are kids eating while you're with them? Like, is this something that happens? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you're like helping them to eat? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so okay. we usually will schedule a session around a mealtime. So what time do you eat breakfast, lunch, you know, or dinner? Um, I'll show up maybe 15 to 30 minutes before that mealtime to do some what we call preparatory activities as therapists. Um, those can be anything from exercises or just getting used to me being in the room. Um, sometimes it's oral motor preparatory things or sensory preparatory things, or sometimes kids need to kind of look at or smell food for a while before we're willing to engage with it. Um, Mm -hmm. or sometimes it's catching up with mom for a good half an hour on how the week went so that I know kind of what I'm stepping into for that mealtime. Um, and so, yes, we work with, uh, um, you know, the family around that that mealtime schedule. And I oftentimes will also bring food because how awkward is it? How awkward would it be if you went out to lunch with a friend and they just sat and watched you eat? Uh, <laughs> I was, I was stared at you. Yeah. Do the families ever also offer you whatever that is that they're eating? Or do you just, like you said, you bring your own food and you eat your lunch while they are eating something else? I very often am bringing in foods for them to try um, or they're cooking food and making food. And yes, they are always offering me food. However, I will tell you that 
very often. Um, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, whoever is the caregiver in the session, they are so focused on that baby, that little one, that they have nothing out for themselves and they're just so in tune with what that baby is doing. And so I actually have to remind them to, why don't you get something for yourself or whatever they're eating, put a little bit of something on your plate so that you can kind of eat with them and show them, model, um, really eat in kind of that community way together. Because again, you have two adults at least, but sometimes it's mom, dad, grandma, and me. So then that's four adults all staring at this baby while they just eat. I mean, that's just not going to work. It's uncomfortable for anybody, right? So I don't want to be watched by four people eat. Um, so we try to really put ourselves in the baby's body and the little one's body, right? And and think what would we want at a mealtime? So interesting. But Leah, so before we get started, actually, can you give us a little bit of your background story? How did you get started with occupational therapy? We want to hear a little bit about you, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah. Back to the beginning. Um, I have kind of a weird start to my occupational therapy journey. I did not graduate high school knowing what occupational therapy was and like know that I wanted to do pre-OT and then go straight into grad school. So I started my bachelor's degree and I ended up graduating with a fine art painting degree. Um, I'm a painter. I'm an artist. And so I graduated with that degree. And then, of course, my grandmother, who I just adore, my grandma, Rosemary, um, she's a nurse. And so she then, when I graduated, said, well, what are you going to do with a fine art <laughs> painting degree? She's also a painter, too. So that's interesting, but then a nurse. And um, I was looking at art therapy and, you know, you can be an art therapist or a teacher. But I knew I wanted to heal and work with people. So I was looking at art therapy and then she recommended, my grandmother recommended, occupational therapy. I'd never heard of it. I looked at it and thought, this is such a good combination of everything that I want to do and started on that track. So then I kind of completely pivoted and and went the healthcare um, therapy route. So um, I was an assistant at first. I got my associates and worked as an assistant um, for for a set of years, many years, um, where you need a a supervisor to work underneath. And then I went back and got my doctorate and and opened up my business. And and here we are. So um, the feeding specialty, I would say, started as an assistant. I was definitely being trained up a little bit by my mentor, but really didn't solidify until I went back to school and got my doctorate and got all of that kind of um, extra training that um, I feel strongly you need to, um, to really specialize in feeding. Okay. And can you tell us what exactly is an occupational therapist? <laughs> yes, I can. I you, feel I like can. maybe I'm the only one that doesn't know, but. <laughs> no, no. 99.8% of people do not know. Really, you only know if you've ever needed one in your life or your kids have needed one. But we work with kids throughout, or we work with humans rather, um, throughout the lifespan from, you know, birth through all the way through the end. Um, And so I actually, when I first, first graduated um, school with my assistant degree, worked in geriatrics for a set amount of months. So we work with a whole lifespan. Um, And occupational therapists work with um, human beings on anything that occupies your time. So it's a very wide scope and set of skills. So those things that occupy your time are what we call occupations. So then when we look at pediatric occupational therapy, most of what we do, we're all three mothers here. So most of what we do, most of what children do to occupy their time, they're doing with us. There's very few, few things, you know, hopefully we get that independent play that they go start doing as they're growing up. But here we're talking, you know, mostly zero through three here today. Um, they're called co-occupations. We are working with them to get dressed or do bath time or feed them. They're doing very little on their own. So we call those co-occupations. So 
occupational therapists help you either get back to what you want to be doing in those occupations after injury or insult. If you're in a car accident and you're older and you've had a traumatic brain injury, you're going to have an occupational therapist come in and teach you how to go to the bathroom again, how to shower again, maybe how to drive again. There's occupational therapists that solely work on relearning how to drive after you've had a traumatic brain injury. So that's super cool, right? Like a super cool niche specialty. Um, when it comes to pediatrics, so, you know, specifically to me, people will say all the time, you must love working with children. I do love working with children, but most of my work is with adults because I'm working with the parent. Yes, I see and I hold babies and I love babies all day long for sure. But most of my work is with that parent. So I, I mostly work with adults because all of that practice and that co-occupation happens when I'm not there. So I've got a parent coach those parents on how they're going to interact with their child to make those occupations stronger. Um, I want to step back to some so it doesn't have to be an accident or injury to affect your occupations. You can also be born with something um, congenital um, that causes something. So we'll work with kids who have Down syndrome to, you know, strengthen everything going on oral motor just globally um, so that they can eat better. Um, kids on the spectrum, expanding their food repertoire, if it's a sensory concern or just an aversion piece. Um, cerebral palsy. I mean, I could go on and on and on about congenital things. Um, mm -hmm. You know, yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. It's long-winded, right, to explain it. And so that's where our scope is so wide, but then you really have to focus in on what patient population and kind of what set of occupations do we want to look at here. But you have to be well-versed in all of them because it affects everything. If I've got a mom who's really struggling with postpartum depression and home management, which is an occupation that we look at in our scope, is all over the place, and because of the postpartum depression and she's having trouble making food for her child and the baby's eight months and still hasn't started solids, you see how we have to look at the whole picture, the whole context in order for that baby to grow and thrive. So I'm going to have to support that mother and that baby in those co-occupations and their house and the, you know, it's a lot. It's a lot. But occupational therapists have that superpower of being able to look at the whole picture and piece it all together and figure it out and, and help healing happen for the whole family. This is, I love it. It's so interesting to me. And yeah. so you, so you are an occupational therapist, but you, you have the specialty of a feeding component. So what mm -hmm. does that, what is a feeding specialist? And is, yes. yeah, specifically uh, in relation to the kids that you work with and their ages and stuff like that. Right. So what's interesting is with Healthcare in general is this way, but with occupational therapy specifically, right now we're licensed by state. So if you talk to a therapist in California or if, you know, therapists are listening to this or in Texas or Arkansas or whatever, each state kind of has its own opinions, licensing, mandates on what you need to do um, training-wise and certification-wise to become a feeding therapist or a feeding specialist. It's not limited to occupational therapists, a speech therapist. Um, can very often and very often is a feeding specialist. And some states are more heavy on feeding therapy being done by a speech therapist. Colorado is a pretty equal disciplined um, feeding specialist state, and we don't need an, an extra certification for that. California, you need extra hours and mentorship and stuff like that. And then you test, I believe. They've changed some things up. I'm not super up to date. Um, 
as far as I can tell you my opinion on it, I think that OTs come out of school, grad school, with the ability to look at that full big picture context and occupations and say, this kid might be overwhelmed in this context, which is really loud and noisy, and they might be too overwhelmed to sit down at the table and eat. Or they might be able to sit down and focus for this mealtime a little bit longer if we used a visual timer or we turned off the TV or something like that. Um, OTs can also come out with a, just straight out of school with understanding of sensory processing and, and things like that. Maybe expanding picky eating, um, rep, food repertoire is just a little bit there. But if you really want to go beyond that, it does really take some specialty training. Understanding what's going on from an oral motor standpoint. Um, taking continuing education on what is aspiration, what's happening um, from a neuro, uh, you know, physiological and biological standpoint with the digestive system and um, swallowing and, you know, how does the epiglottis cover up the airway when the swallow trigger happens and how to read a swallow study. These are all uh, pieces of training that we do not get in grad school. And I feel pretty strongly about needs to, you know, needs to be done and needs to happen before you go out there and kind of claim that you're a feeding specialist because things escalate quickly, as you know, in your practice. Christine, like I've walked in and it's just like the parent wants help expanding a picky eater's food repertoire, but all of a sudden we've got gut issues and actually they're aspirating, you know? And so early on in my career, you know, when it hits that, you got to pass it off to somebody that knows what they're doing and know where your limit is. Cause feeding can get, you know, if you don't know what you're doing, you can be unsafe. So it's very important that you specialize and that you're, you know, aware of your limits and your skills and you use good clinical judgment and ethics when it comes to feeding therapy. And so a feeding specialist is going to help parents, uh, I guess, feed their babies or if they have any specific issues with maybe like swallowing or I, I'm, I'm guessing the most common one that you get is my baby gags every time they eat, uh, something like that. Yeah, we get a lot of um, parents will call and say my baby's choking every day, but it's really gagging. Or we'll get babies that are vomiting 10 to 12 times a day. Um, and not gaining weight, failure to thrive. Um, G-tubes, where we're vomiting. I mean, we get calls for everything. You wouldn't believe the different calls we get. Um, yeah, we get calls for everything, really. So are parents calling you out of the blue, or are they, are they like talking to their pediatrician and the pediatrician is, is suggesting that they see an OT? Both. So we get referrals from all over the place as a practice. We work with Colorado Early Intervention really closely. We've got contracts with, um, I think, up to four different counties now um, in Colorado. So we'll get referrals there. Um, we have relationships with a few, quite a few now pediatricians where they'll be able to notify or notice that and then notify us and get that referral going. Um, but with the power of Google, oh my goodness, parents do get on there and Dr. Google things and then we pop up and then they'll do a free consult with us and we'll get them set up that way. Um, and then children's hospitals sometimes will send us kids too. So we get them from everywhere. Um, and parents are, I very rarely get a referral where it's like, no, you guys are doing okay. You know, usually they're spot on. The parents' intuition is we do need some support here. Um, more often than not, um, with pediatricians, there is a lot of hurry or not hurry up and wait, um, but a let's wait and see. Oh, you're puking 10 times. Well, they're three to four months, and that can be normal reflex age and stage. Let's just wait and see. Okay, but now we're five, six months, and we're still vomiting, and now we're not gaining weight. So 
I, I understand the let's try to grow out of it and stuff, but then we also get anxious parents where it's like the longer we wait and see, the more anxious this parent is getting and then the less inclined they are to offer solids. And then we just have this like spiral that can happen. So why not throw in a couple OT visits to get this parent a little less overwhelmed, make sure that nothing serious is going on and then have somebody like have me on call. So maybe I don't see you for a couple months, but then something else comes up, I'll come back in. So I think there's an education piece too to providers we could do. Yeah. I was just going to say, yeah, no, go ahead. You ask Corey. Okay. I just have a really quick question about the puking thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. uh, I know. I saw your eyes get big. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious, what's the difference, if you could give me a, um, a, a idea of this, what's the difference between puking and spitting up? Right. Um, I use the word puking a lot just because it's like more casual when I'm talking to parents. And so definitely not a medical term, puking. Um, but when I'm talking to parents, <laughs> I'm like, how many times did they puke this week? Or how oh, many pukes today? Um, so there's GERD. Um, there's re- true reflux. And then babies do spit up. Their digestive tract and everything is developing. And so you will have a baby that has completely normal, like, developmental spit-ups, right? Um, But what I'm more referring to those, like, when I said, like, 10 to 12 pukes a day, that's the babies that, like, after every feed or even, like, two hours after a feed, we're having projectile vomiting of, like, Mm, almost the entire volume that we've had. And so then you can imagine that we're having, um, you know, bottle or aversion at the breast because our throat is so sore from vomiting or every time I eat, I vomit Um, or, you know. So it can escalate quickly or failure to thrive because everything we take down, we vomit up, you know, 90% of it. And so um, that level of vomiting is sometimes what we will get calls for. And there can be all different um, reasons for that. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I know a lot of like my kids, every single one of them Mm -hmm. spit up like after every when when they were breastfeeding, they would spit up Mm -hmm. after every meal, I guess. Um, but I had friends whose babies were never spitting up and I was always like, wait a minute, like, is this an over the top thing or is this a normal amount of babyness? you know? Mm-hmm. like, <laughs> Yeah. So it's, and that's interesting. It's tough. It's like definitely a gray area because if, you know, they're gaining the weight that they're supposed to be gaining and they're still willing to eat and it's not a substantial amount, it's like, can we kind of is it okay? Should we just tough it out until they grow out of it with solids or is it a substantial enough amount or is it affecting their quality of life and your quality enough? Do we want to talk to a pediatrician about a reflux med or talk to someone like Christine about switching up diets and sensitivities and things like that? There's a lot that goes into it. And we do work closely with dietitians to try to tease that out. You know, is this a concern where we want to intervene or is this a wait and see thing? Sometimes wait and see is very appropriate. You know, that GI tract might need a month just to some space to just take a beat, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, wait and see is yeah. not always awful. My biggest problem was just, there was a ton of laundry. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It's like some of my parents, that's like, if, if it's summer, like just naked baby them. hundred you know? percent on that one. Yeah. yeah yep. Put <laughs> down those pee pads all over the couch. I'll set up those pee pads all over the couch for families. And it's just like, you know, we start fre- with fresh laundry every single night. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. You know it. That's so interesting, Corey. I wonder if it was, did you Did you have high milk production maybe? I think that's probably what it was, yeah. Yeah, like it, maybe it came out really fast at the beginning or something and they just were like, yeah. <laughs> like 
Yeah, no, there was definitely some. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds probably really terrible over the the yeah. airwaves. Plug your ears. No, because like I always think, if it's projectile vomit, it's so obvious. If that happens, it's a ton that comes out, and and like you said, they they're most of the time they are emptying the contents of their stomach, and it's just like okay, that's not normal. Yeah. Um, See, there that's not what was happening with my kids. I can tell you that. Like they they were just it's just like a a spit up situation, but it wasn't, there was a couple times where it would be like, whoa, that, that went pretty far, but like, <laughs> but not, but not what I would have called projectile vomiting now. Yeah. Um, totally. And it, and well, it almost always kind of dissipated once they started solids. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Very often my babies where their reflux is where it's true GERD or reflux and it's really not subsiding by like four or five, six months, we'll make sure to start at that like four or five months, especially if motor skills are ready because it truly does help. And the dietitian, you may love this. She loves our cookbook. Her name is Kimber and we love working really. And I emailed, I was like, I just want to make sure. But she's like, I love this as a dietitian. She's been starting my babies um, like that with their reflex, those early solids on root veggies. Um, uh And it's been really helping us. So carrots, sweet potatoes, purple potatoes. Um, too, and it's been awesome. Okay, so I wanted you to go into, if it's possible, let's kind yeah. of start from the beginning as far as like, actually, wait, back up one second. Can you define GERD just for any listener out there who's not familiar with what that means? Define GERD, and then I'm going to tell you what I want to uh, transition into. Right. Okay, so GERD, I want to keep it simple just for listeners. GERD is like a more intense version of reflux. So that's where you get that like reflux can be painful, but GERD is extremely painful. Um, GERD can have that projectile vomiting coming up and things like that. Um, It's gastroesophageal reflux disease is what it stands for, where reflux can just be up and down and up and down. And then sometimes it comes out. So sometimes it looks like a spit up. Sometimes it looks like a full vomit. GERD can be super, super painful um, for babies. And so that's where we definitely, not definitely, I hate to talk and ultimate, like, you know, the, the purest stuff, but that's where I will have docs more willing to bring on a med to help because we'll have more aversions or even more aversions to like moving and, and motor. Like I have a little one right now. He's in so much pain. He's got GERD and possible, um, a condition called EOE. He's in so much pain, just gut wise that his, he looks like he's got neuro issues. Like he's so tight tone wise, but he's just in so much pain that he's tensed up all the time. So he's not meeting motor milestones because he's not willing to move because he's in pain so much. So all of this really can affect just quality of life. Right. So GERD in a nutshell, it's more intense reflux, but not, I'm not doing it justice. However, I'm not a GI. That's an important thing to remember. I'm not a gastrointestinal you know, specialist. That's a really important thing to remember as a feeding specialist. There are so many other specialties that I rely on dietitians, nutritionists, GIs, pulmonologists, like so out of my scope to know, you know, what's going on with a lot of my, I work with so many different specialists to get the big picture. So I'm definitely not a specialist on GERD, but that's why I know. Thank you. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. 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 So let's transition over to starting solids and 
let's give people kind of a an overview of how old baby is when we're starting solids approximately and Mm -hmm. what are the developmental milestones that need to be in place to safely start solids. Uh, Let's start with those. Yeah. So we like to start babies between four and six months old. Now that's dependent on um, milestones a bit. However, there are some exceptions to that rule, which I know you and I talk a lot about. Um, but let's start with just like general readiness signs. So we want them sitting strong and we need good trunk control and head control and neck control so that our airway is nice and open and protected. Um, and that, you know, esophagus is nice and open. Your throat is nice and open for eating. You're sitting strong. Um, you're also able to reach for objects and bring them to your mouth because we need to reach for food to bring it to our mouth. Um, they're interested in the food you're eating. Like you're noticing that like you have them on your lap at a barbecue and you're eating and all of a sudden they're reaching, they're using that reaching skill and they've brought your whole plate onto your lap because they want some of those um, beans or whatever, you know, is on your plate at that moment. Um, They're interested in what you're eating. They want to start trying foods. Typically these align between four and six months. Not for all kids though. That one kid I just described, he is about to be seven months he is hitting two of these. He's not sitting strong yet, but he was a preemie and research shows that we want to get him started. We don't want to wait. And so we've started solids and I've figured out a way to get him positioned in a high chair that's safe and trained family on how to get him starting solids in a safe way. But typically all children, four to six months. So why four to six months? So there are some protective reflexes that the mouth has around this age that help in learning solids and also help to protect the airway. So it makes learning solids during this time frame safer and more effective for long-term outcomes. So one of those being the tongue thrust reflex. So it gets a bad rep. People are like, my baby's still tongue thrusting or every time my baby takes a bite, they spit it out with their tongue. So they're not doing that on purpose. They're not doing it because they don't like it. That's a reflex. And that's that tongue going in and out. One, to explore the food. They might be kind of doing that on purpose, but also the tongue does that to protect the airway and also kind of to explore what is this sensation and do I fully want it in their mouth, in my mouth. You'll also see, especially if you do baby led weaning, if they get too big of a chunk off of something, they'll use that tongue thrust reflex to spit it right out. It's a protective reflex. And that hangs out between that five to eight month range. All of these that I'm about to mention do. Um, there's also a munching reflex that happens. Like if you get your finger in a baby's mouth, they'll start chewing on it. Right. And so we have that little reflex that we, that munching reflex that we use. We want to actually use that reflex while it's turned on before it integrates to learn how to chew. That way, when it integrates, it kind of turns off that chewing's already established. And then we start offering those chewable foods and we already know how to chew because good chewers are safe eaters right? If a kid doesn't know how to chew, that makes a lot of foods kind of unsafe by the time they get back to the back of the throat. Um, The other reflex that is definitely present, but it never goes away, is our gag reflex. We all have a gag reflex. Um, It starts in the front third of the mouth, which makes sense. You know, that's where kind of the nipple sits. And then as they get older, it kind of integrates to the back of the throat slowly but surely. 
Okay, so that gag reflex being up towards the front too, if a piece is too far back, we're not ready for it, they're going to gag that forward, tongue thrust it out. There's just so much protection that happens learning solids. So if we wait until eight months to introduce solids, a lot of these are gone. The gag reflex will still be there because we haven't stimulated it enough for it to integrate. Oh, okay. I was about to say, but is it further back or It might no. be. Okay. It might be if the baby's uh, been mouthing things like their hands or toys or teethers and stuff, they can integrate it back a little bit that way for sure. Yeah. So what Lisa, oh my gosh, Lisa, I don't know why I said Lisa, Leah. <laughs> wow. Sorry. <laughs> what Leah means by integration is tell me if I'm, if I'm explaining this correctly, but basically it is moving further back into the mouth and mm -hmm. it's, um, not going to be activated as much is that basically it or yes so it won't well yes so it won't be activated as much because it's further back in the throat so our gag reflex will activate if it's stimulated oh. right in the back of our throat um, some reflexes completely integrate and go away and some integrate like the gag reflex just positionally where it's not in the front of the mouth now it's the back of the throat but the munching reflex and the tongue re um, reflex integrate completely. There's also other infant reflexes that integrate completely. So this is why, as for babies, this is why they put so many things in their mouth. And this is why we want babies to be putting things into their mouth and exploring constantly. Mm -hmm. Food, toys, everything, right? Yes, I know. Sometimes, not you know what, less and less, I would say lately, less and less, I get parents that are kind of paranoid about things in baby's mouth. But sometimes I'll get parents that they just don't want baby putting anything in their mouth. And I have to kind of explain that's how babies explore, especially before we're mobile, right? We have so many nerve endings in our hands and our mouth and our genitals are actually like the three big places we have nerve endings, which makes sense. We need to like touch things, eat things and procreate to continue to be a human you know, population, right? And totally. so babies, yeah, so babies reach for things and they mouth things and it's totally appropriate. And just like you said, absolutely necessary to get that gag reflex back. And they're getting those oral motor skills, right? So they might have it in the middle and then if it gets over to the side, the tongue's going to go over and feel it and, and do that lateralization, which they'll need um, for eating too. So yes, I mean, if they're putting things in their mouth that you don't want them to, maybe invest in a few teethers or some toys that you're okay with and provide them, but they've got to get things in their mouth. Yeah. What yeah. is lateralization and why does that matter? Mm -hmm. So tongue lateralization is when your tongue lateralizes or moves to the side over to where the gums or teeth are and why that is important. So every time I explain some of these things, I always say next time you eat, see if you can pay attention. Things go so fast when we eat because we've already learned all of these things. We don't pay any attention to these things anymore. Um, but next time you eat, see if you notice you'll take a bite and your tongue moves it over to your gum, to your molars so that you can chew it. Sometimes if it's really resistive, like a carrot or a piece of jerky, we instinctually now will just bite it actually with our molars, right? Instead of using our front teeth to pull at it. Um, but if you take a bite generally, your tongue will then take it and move it over to the side to chew. And again, chew, good chewers are safe eaters. So my kids that are having trouble with lateralization, sometimes it'll get stuck on their tongue. It'll cause a gag. It'll cause a puke um, or a choke right? Because we weren't able to chew it because we didn't get it over to our teeth. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, okay. Wait. So two questions. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Corey. I feel like I'm like totally taking over. <laughs> no, you're fine. You're fine. Um, let's talk about the difference between gagging and choking. That is such mm-hmm. a big one. And yeah. then I know I'm going to, I'm, we're going to get listeners that are going to say, but my baby has no teeth. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So gagging yeah. and choking. And then what do you say to my baby has no teeth? Yeah. Remind me if I forget about the teeth. So gagging and choking. Yeah. I mentioned earlier, sometimes I'll get calls. My baby is choking all the time. I, I, I hmm, let me think about this. I think twice in my career, 10 years, I think twice only I have gone in and truly this baby is like choking and it's an issue and we've got to call and get a swallow study and like something's going on, whether it's neurological or something's not, not good, not good. Um, the other 99% of the time, it's just gagging and parents think it's choking. And so then it's the education piece on what is the difference between gagging and choking. Um, so what is gagging? Gagging, we just talked about. It's a reflex. It's a protective reflex. We all have it. There's actually nothing more concerning to me when a, if a baby isn't showing me that they've got a gag reflex because that is so protective. Um, when we gag, the airway is still open. So in order to make an audible sound, your airway has to be open. So gagging is going to be loud. It's going to be nasty sounding. They're going to be red. They might be coughing. It's audible and it's horrible to watch. It's horrible to hear. It's awful. I get why I get calls about it because it's horrible. Gagging is horrible. I get it. Um, True choking is when your airway is blocked because there's something there that is either stuck in the airway or covering the airway. And so it's completely silent because the airway is blocked and we can't make any sound. So baby is turning blue, baby is silent, eyes are big. That's a true choke. That's why anytime I start solids with a family or I go into do feeding therapy, one of the first big pieces of education I do is you have got to physically be watching your child the entire time they are eating up through at least two because choking is silent. So if you are cooking and your baby is eating behind your back, if they choke, you're not going to hear it. You'll hear a gag and then you can turn around and say, are you okay? But you can't hear a choke. So you've got to be physically watching. There's a saying, quiet and blue, I need you. Loud and red, go ahead. So I tell that to parents too, because if you're loud and red, right, you've got that airway to still make that audible noise so that you're just gagging, your airway's still open. But if you are quiet and blue, I need you. I need the Heimlich. I might need the squat, but usually the Heimlich can, can fix most, most uh, child choking situations. Okay. So if our kids are um, just gagging, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, what, yeah, what do you suggest parents do? Mm -hmm. I mean, parents hate this answer and I hate giving this answer. (laughs) Gag, the gag reflex is one of those reflexes that the only way to integrate it is to do it. And so the best way to integrate a gag reflex is to gag. So the more that baby is stimulating their oral motor structures and gagging, the less that they will gag. So you've got to let them gag. So leave them alone. So none of this finger swiping. Sometimes you'll see parents finger swiping. Right. Or like patting kids on the back or something like that. Yeah. So if they're, I don't hate the patting on the 
back if the high chair is set up okay. If they're reclined in it and they're trying to like squeeze their hand in there and pat on the back when they're still reclined, then gravity could kind of then rumble it back into the airway. So that's dangerous. So I don't really recommend that. I would recommend, um, first of all, let's talk about the finger swipe. So we never, ever, 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 ever put our finger or hand in a child's mouth to retrieve a piece of food because what you actually can do when you do that is push it back into the airway. So I know that it's like all the time moms just stick their whole hand in there, but you can, you can then cause a choke on what was just a gag. And so, yes. So we either back off the difficulty of food that we're giving kids. If they're gagging and almost choking on every single piece of food that mom or dad or parent, whoever is giving, then that tells me we need to back off on the difficulty of the food, not keep offering and keep saving. Um, But I have had those finger swiping moms. But as soon as I say that, they stop because they get it. But I'm a mom. I get that. I've gone into finger swipe one or two. Okay, don't do that. You know, I've got my mom brain and my OT brain and they're very separate. I will say that. Yeah, I mean, I... I, I, I have four kids, right? And yeah. I've done baby led weaning with all of them. Yeah. And gagging is the worst thing to watch. It's terrible it's to worst. watch. My husband the, can barely watch. He almost vomits himself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My husband, yeah. my kids actually are really upset. Or, I mean, my, my youngest is two, is three now, but like when, when she was little, my older kids got very upset by it. Um, and they're like, mom, 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 you have to help. Why aren't you doing something? They're choking, you know, and it's, it is, it's very difficult to watch mm-hmm. and it's very difficult to make yourself not help. Mm-hmm. And keep an out, a neutral or positive out loud face is what I trained my parents on. So babies, it's not comfortable to gag either. I mean, yeah. it's really, it's really not comfortable to choke. That's where we get the big eyes, but it's not comfortable to gag either. And so they're going to be looking to you. It's just like when they fall down, when they're learning to walk and they look at you of like, am I supposed to be upset about that tumble? They're going to be looking at you while they're actively gagging of like, is this cool what I'm doing right now? Because it feels kind of like not safe or just uncomfortable. You have to look at them. And Nick, with this awful face I'm making, you know, they're not going to be able to see it, but they can probably hear me fake smiling. (laughs) Um, You know, wow, that's a big piece. Or wow, that's a tricky piece. You got it. You want a sip of water? You're good. Or at least neutral. Because if you start getting big eyes and a scary face, that teaches baby gagging is not safe. It's scary. It's not okay. And you need to be worried every time you gag. And then they stop putting stuff in their mouth. I've seen it. Okay, so... Um, I'm going to, I'm going to devil's advocate this question. Um, (laughs) wouldn't the easier thing be to just give them foods that are pre-chewed or pre, you know, like purees or jars of food that are already smooth so that there is no, um, chance of choking or gagging? Such a good question, Corey. Yeah. Let's avoid it completely. Yeah, but this research shows the baby led weaning, the bliss study actually showed that there was more choking and gagging on purees. Um, why, why would that be? Okay, so here's what it showed. It showed that there was more gagging in the short term for babies who did baby led weaning, but less choking and gagging in the long term. 
at where in comparison on the sh on the short term for babies who did purees less choking and gagging for purees but then on the long term they gagged and choked more Be so so these children are then um continuing that uh exploratory process with their gagging and choking as they're older so yeah. they're they're holding on to it like through toddlerhood and I'd have to go back and look at the age range. I think these babies were like zero through 18 months, if I remember correctly. I'd have to go back and look. They may have looked at them up through two. But the gagging and the choking, which is the most concerning to me, and this is because of skill development, right? So, yes, it looks awful. It doesn't feel great. It's not this, like, beautiful, you know, solid introduction where we're all you know, enjoying this, you're watching your baby learn something that's difficult and gagging. But long-term, they're better eaters and they're safer eaters. So when we talk about feeding, we always talk about the long-term goal. What is the long-term goal for you as a parent? And nine times out of 10, I want them to be a safe eater and I want them to not be picky. Those are the two things. I want them to not choke and to not be picky. We Go both. Ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> At the same time. I know. Wait, no, I was just going to say one of the things that I learned about you, learned from you, which is so interesting, is the fact that eating is a skill. Mm -hmm. it's, I, it's something yeah. I had never thought about before, but yeah. eating is a learned skill. And so when we are giving our babies the opportunity to do this three times mm -hmm. a day or as often as possible, then they are improving that skill. Mm -hmm. Corey, what were you going to say? I was going to say, let's get back to the teeth question. So right. if if babies don't have teeth, um, then, mm -hmm. you know, the obvious answer or the obvious thing to a parent mm -hmm. is to go, okay, well, they don't have teeth. They can't chew. So we're just going to give them mm -hmm. smoothies yeah. or, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. purees. Yeah. Right. Yeah. right. Yeah. I mean, but when they don't have teeth, we're not giving them pieces of steak. Like, and so I always tell like we're not giving them well we are i see your face but we're not giving them marble we're yeah. not giving them marble sized airway pieces of chewable food right so yeah. yes we're maybe giving them like the long food teether piece of steak to suck on and gnaw on absolutely but we're not cutting it up in cube sized pieces and saying here's an airway sized piece of steak good luck with your gums Right, because they don't or, or right raw or hard or, or right enough, or a grape. Yeah. We're not going to give a grape um. when they just have gums. That's not what I'm saying, right? So when we don't have teeth yet, of course we're not giving like a true chewable. Um, I have a handout I give parents. It's called Fork Mashable Foods, mm -hmm. and so it's a whole long list of about almost a hundred foods that you can make into a fork mashable, so that there are chunks in there, but none of them are airway sized. So that if they do happen to get back to the back of the throat before they're kind of mushed further by the gums, we're not going to choke. We might gag, but we're not going to choke on it. Um, and so we don't need teeth to eat. The gums are strong. I mean, put your finger in a baby's mouth. Oh, my gosh. Sometimes my babies hurt me with just their gums. That jaw is strong, especially that munching reflex. It's super strong. Um so, I mean, is that what your parents are saying? Like, they don't have teeth, so why would we give them chewables? Or what's the what's the feedback? I've gotten that a few times. I mean, well, so I actually, I, um, I know a few people that operate under that thought process. Okay. Uh, okay. I do think that it tends to be cultural as well. So, mm -hmm. depending on where these individuals are from originally, 
the Mm -hmm. cultural belief is that because the baby has no teeth, they need only purees. And then they sort of transition them through the different thickness of purees. Mm. And yeah. So I, I, I know, I know that there's, there's different variables involved in that belief system. Yeah. Um, I've had some cultures too, Christine, like what you're saying, they're like, there's no teeth. So we're just going to do purees, especially grandma or grandpa will come in and say only purees. But then they're also handing them rib bones or things that there's no way they could get a piece off of. And so they're almost doing a baby led weaning traditional puree combination approach, which you and I talk extensively about. So I see that too in different, at different cultures, but yeah. I know my grandmother used to take um, a chicken bone and dip mm-hmm. it in like a, a cleaned off, you know, like a leg yeah. chicken bone yeah. and dip it in the gravy and then mm-hmm. hand it to the babies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a great idea. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Wow. Well, yeah. Also, cause those kinds of things, bones, uh, cleaned off bones, uh, even if they have, if it's like a steak bone or something and it has a little bit of meat on it, those things are really helpful for babies if they're teething too. Just yeah. That sense of yeah. Teething. I had, there was, um, I, I used to work for this theater in, in, um, DC that was run by all, um, the whole staff aside from like a couple people, me obviously, um, was Russian, Georgian, Ukrainian, these, mm-hmm. all these people. And they, when I first, when I had my first baby, when I worked there and had a baby, they, every single one of them, kind of individually told me when I was talking about teething um, to give him a really hard, crusty piece of bread to chew on. And they're like, and make sure you put butter on it. Yeah. I'm like, (laughs) okay. (laughs) So like the baby could suck the butter off and then chew on the really crusty. Yeah. 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 We'll do, we call them pizza bones. We'll like leave pizza crust out overnight to get stale. Right. Oh, and yeah. so the babies can munch on those and the ends of the butts of the bread and leaving those out to be stale. So people have been doing this all over the world for generations. Gerber has come in. I'll just say the G word. Gerber has come in and <laughs> staged us in the whole entire aisle of the grocery store. Right. And so we now have all these recommendations here, um, even throughout, you know, what's recommended to parents through the AAP. Um for purees and things like that. But if you look at the WHO recommendations and what the whole world is doing, it is not what Gerber's doing. I can tell you that. That's interesting. Can you describe what is the difference between baby led weaning and puree feeding for anyone who is not familiar with that? Yeah. So that's a really heavy topic. I already said the G word. I hope we don't get tagged. So the traditional. Okay. Hold on. I'm really hoping that you use that as a, as a swear word in your house and that your child like ends up going to kindergarten and be like, Oh no. I know. I know. I will say though, there are some kids and definitely some families where that is cost approachable and that's what's in their grocery stores. And the, like the, I love right now the, um, strawberry banana teething, the round cylinders, those are great long resistive, like baby led weaning kind of knockoff things that they're doing. So that's a Gerber thing that I use. So I'm not a purist on anything. Even when I dislike something, there's certain things that I do don't mind or do like and use. So, um, but as far as the, I guess the baby difference between baby led weaning and traditional approach is that what you're asking. Yes. That's a big topic, Christine. It's, it's a whole so, episode. 
That is a whole episode. So it depends on where you live in the world, on what's recommended to you by pediatricians, by, you know, whether it's the CDC, the AAP, the WHO, they all have kind of different recommendations. Even some of our governing bodies have, um, you know, conflicting recommendations. So that's really tough for parents. Um, However, the traditional approach is to start with a cereal or a single ingredient puree. Um, to do that, so like one for two or three days, and then if no reactions or anything, do another one for two or three days. And you kind of do that with the hope of, I'd have to pull it up on the recommendation site on how many they want you to have. And then there's like, you know, make sure you get one jar in by this age of the purees and two jars in by this age and that type of thing. And then at this age, you can start doing like the puffs that they do and like the multiples and things like that. And you slowly go up to the teething biscuits and things like that and then chewables. And then by the time they're, this is what drives me nuts about the traditional approach. And again, I use a combination of the two. So I'm not a purist on anything, even just liking things like I just said. Um, This is what drives me nuts about this purist traditional approach though. All of a sudden with the traditional approach, we ask kids to chew with no chewing practice. So we've basically taken them from milk, which you drink, to I mean, when you take a bite of applesauce, do you chew it? I just swallow it, right? So there's no chewing there. Purees, there's no real, right? We're not chewing. And then all of a sudden, like between nine and 12 months, we're supposed to start giving them chewables. That doesn't make any sense to me. We've also completely missed all of those reflexes, the munching and the tongue thrust and everything where we could have been practiced chewing and wasted it on uh, drinking, basically, skills or drink, like eating smoothies, eating purees, you know, um, baby led weaning. Um, however, as much as I love it is not the perfect thing for all kids. Yeah. I can say that. Right. Like well, I have well, some kids. Yeah. Go quick, ahead. Define what baby led weaning is real quick. So that for people who might not know what it is. Well, like we were, were we talking before we were online or off? line where like there's the purist right so like should I say the that purist was, was definition before. was that before we logged on right Just um, generally what generally what is baby led weaning <laughs> <laughs> okay so generally baby led weaning is a way to give babies solid foods where they progress through foods um, differently from the traditional where they're more whole it's more whole food weaning I actually like whole food weaning more than baby led weaning because my parents and like friends will say, what's baby led weaning? You just let the baby do it itself. And it's like, well, obviously like we talked about co-occupations. No, the baby's not doing it themselves, but it's more where you put whole foods down in front of the baby and then they decide what they want to pick up and bring to their mouth. I think the name, and I'd have to look at you know why they chose, you know, Jill Rapley chose the name that she did um, for baby led weaning. Um, however, I think that she did because in the traditional approach, we do a lot of spoon feeding. We do a lot of baby open your mouth and here, um, here's some purees. And so I think when she named it, um, baby led weaning, it's the opposite, right? Of the traditional approach. We're letting baby do themselves. Right, right. The idea is that baby is more independent and choosing what foods they want to eat in front of them and whatever Mm -hmm. order, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, can we then touch on, cause I know, I know this is a big thing with baby led weaning is, is there is a hope 
of this helping children not to become picky Mm -hmm. and to also long-term kind of have a better relationship with food because you're not being Mm -hmm. forced to eat something, right? Mm -hmm. Isn't that, is, that's what I kind of remember. Yeah, there's definitely that mixed in. Um, If you think about, you know, if you do a purist traditional approach, like I described, um, a puree is a puree is a puree. Like if you're giving a pear puree, that pear puree is the same, 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 same every time you give it. The, the star puffs that Gerber has, they are the same every time you give it. Whereas if you eat a banana that's fork mashed up, a banana is different on day one off the tree than it is on day 30, than it is on day 15. And so you're getting variety from the start there. So with like a purist traditional approach, you're getting zero variety for a while. And then all of a sudden, again, child is two or three and we're taking them out to restaurants and we're asking them to eat a variety of things. Well, they haven't had any variety in their entire life. And now we're asking them to eat a a diet with good variety. So that just doesn't make any sense to me. Baby led weaning brings in variety from the start because we're using whole foods Um, and so then when we ask kids to accept, even if it's just five different types of nuggets, or can you go to this restaurant and eat chicken fingers here? And then the next day go to this restaurant, eat chicken fingers there. Well, there are different types of chicken fingers. And so that's variety all on its own. And I've got kids that will not, they'll only eat the dino nuggets. So how do we get, you know, cause they're brand specific cause they're the same every time. Does that make sense? Am I speaking clearly? Okay. Okay. Did they answer your question about preventing? So that's one part of preventing picky eating, but there's a lot to preventing picky eating that baby led weaning serves preventing picky eating. There's so much more to it than just that, but that's a huge, huge piece of it is that variety piece. Yeah. Um, Okay. And then can you also touch on how this is potentially, um, you know, helpful in helping kids to regulate their own, um, bodies and their Mm -hmm. relationships with food and stuff. Yeah. Right. So there is a ton of research on that attachment piece and that modeling piece and that community piece around mealtimes and how important it is to have a context in those relationships. So when I say context, that's just the environment that you're in. That's like an OT word that we use of what's the environment like? Is it calm? Is it chaotic? Uh, What's going on? Is the TV up real loud? Um, the humans that you're with that are on the table, your family and that relationship with the caregiver that's helping you learn how to eat is just as important as the context, right? And so sitting at that table with that caregiver and having them not overfeed you by shoving food into your mouth with a spoon every two seconds, they're putting it on your tray and allowing you to develop your own relationship with food can be more beneficial than what I was raised on the traditional approach that's spoon feeding. I actually have a video. I don't think I've ever told you this, Christine. There's a home video. And when I was growing up, you know, my parents didn't have a camcorder. Those like weren't common. But my dad knew I was about to take my first step. So he brought the camcorder home from work. And so there's two parts of this video. One of me taking my first steps. But the the one before that was my mom feeding me. And it was the traditional approach. So I had a puree and then yogurt. And she was feeding me and feeding me and feeding me, spoon feeding, spoon feeding, spoon feeding. I start showing my fullness cues. I'm turning my head. At this point, I was nine months old. I walked really early. I'm turning my head. I actually put up my hand at one point. I'm closing my mouth. She's still feeding me. Okay? Videos wrapping up. 
She's cleaning up. All of a sudden, end the video, projectile vomit everywhere. She overfed me. Wow. No big deal. Parents do that all the time. You know, nothing bad on my mom, but that's the traditional approach. It's nothing to do with what the baby is saying or needing or wanting. It's I, but you know what? I got to say this. When we get our babies home from the hospital, what's our number one job? Feed them enough, keep them alive, keep them growing. And then it's really hard for parents to then put them in a high chair and say, okay, here's food. Now you're supposed to kind of do this yourself. And how do, you know, that's a hard transition. So that's a lot of it too. I want to say that. I just want to acknowledge that. Yeah. And I think also we have no context for baby stomach sizes and quantity of food. No, no one told my mother that. Yeah. As adults, you know, we're eating full plates of food and it, and sometimes we might not think that a baby, their stomach is what, it's the size of a pea or something like that from the hospital. And then it gets bigger and bigger, but even a six month old still has a very small stomach and it's Mm -hmm. only intaking a tiny amount of food. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, oh, okay. We cannot forget to talk about the flavor and texture windows because this is a very important part of feeding babies as well. Yes. 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 Touch on that. Yeah. Okay. So we were talking about the reflexes, like the gag, the tongue thrust, the munching, and you know that window and why it's so important um, to introduce solids between four and six months. So we can kind of use those reflexes, right, or not kind of use those reflexes to our benefit, whether it be safety or learning to chew or everything we talked about. There are also windows. Um, that the brain is primed to learn both flavor and texture that we can capitalize on. And they have found creates better long-term outcomes for feeding and eating. So the infant brain develops you know, a quarter million neurons every minute. It's fast. So every four minutes, we get a million new neurons when we're an infant. I mean, oh my gosh, it's a lot. Um, I always tell parents that too, of like, you have... <laughs> millions and billions of opportunities every day to nourish your baby and teach them things. So like if it's 10 minutes where they're playing by themselves or like you have a minute where you're not turned on as a mom or dad, like it's okay. You got plenty of opportunities. Anyways. um, So the brain is primed to learn at that rapid, rapid rate. Um, What research has found is that the brain is primed to learn flavor between four and six months and texture between six and 10 months. And I love that they're in alphabetical order because it makes it really easy for me to, to remember. So flavor and then texture. So flavor four to six, but if we don't start solids until seven months, we've kind of missed the flavor window, right? And I definitely get calls at 11 months. We haven't started solids yet. We're too nervous. They just they just missed their flavor and texture window. Doesn't mean that the ship has sailed. However, another opportunity that we can use to our benefit that prevents picky eating because then when the kid is older, the brain has experienced all of this variety as far as flavor and texture, and it's not new to that brain. It's not new to that toddler brain. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because the next question was, uh, say I'm a parent who, like you mm-hmm. said, is starting solids at 11 months. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you do? What do you say to that parent then? Yeah. 
we just start. I do honest. I watch them eat. I'll do an oral motor, motor assessment um, and see where they're at. And we just jump in just because you've missed like a window of opportunity doesn't mean there's not opportunity left. And those babies are excited to eat and we just jump in, you know, and if they're having trouble chewing, then we modify, you know, because we miss the munching reflex or because we kind of miss the opportunity to do like the long resistive food teethers, right? Because now they have their one year molars coming in because they're 11 months and they got them a little early. I can't do food teethers now anymore. So we just work around it. I might do a silicone teether with some, uh, you know, dips of something on it instead, or we just modify. The ship has never sailed. I mean, I've gotten calls at 13 months. Um, you know, kids have medical things all the time that prevent them from eating. Doctors will put them on a nothing by mouth order and we start at 15 months. Like it's, it's doable. However, if we talk about when I give presentations to parents who have three, four month olds or four or five month olds, and they're thinking ahead, this is what I tell them. But if you've got a seven, eight, nine month year old and you've missed some of these windows, that doesn't mean anything's you know, any ship has sailed permanently. Absolutely not. Okay. So let's, can you give us like, what's the ideal progression here? Yes. Like if you, if you've, you know, you've just had a baby, right? You're, Mm -hmm. you're coming home from the hospital with a newborn Mm -hmm. and you're looking forward Mm -hmm. um, a year or two, you know, Mm -hmm. into your future. What Mm -hmm. are the, how should you be kind of preparing yourself, your spouse, your uh, I guess other caregivers Grandma. if you have yeah <laughs> yes or um yeah so and then like what 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 are the steps that we're looking at we're looking at starting around four and six months you know mm-hmm. would you walk us through that a little bit yeah okay so if you're looking ahead like I just mentioned um, we start thinking about what do we need to kind of prepare so you definitely want to start looking and thinking about, okay, I'm going to be looking for them to be sitting up and reaching for my food, those readiness signs we talked about. Um, But there's things you can do before first foods for sure. So like getting your tools and supplies ready, Um, whether that's little dipping spoons and utensils or like cute little bibs to get you excited or like pick out your favorite high chair that goes with your, like stuff like that, you know, get your high chair ready before you're ready. Yeah, go ahead. What were you going to say? Okay. I was just going to, yeah. Um, yep. I want to know what are we looking for in a high chair? Okay. So our, I, mean, I think you're muted or something. Sorry. I was going to say, can we plug a certain high chair? Okay. Are we going to plug one? Can we do that? I mean, yeah. Can we? <laughs> I think, we I think so. We, Let, we, I think we have to just say like, we're not getting paid for this. Yeah, this is yeah, not yeah. a paid promotion. This thing. is true. No. This is just Christine's promotion. favorite. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Should I do it now or should I wait until after? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. I actually think that there's very few things we need as parents on our parenting list or whatever. But the one thing that is totally worth splurging on is the Stokey high chair. That's just my own personal opinion. It's a higher Mm -hmm. price point, but it literally lasts forever. It's aesthetically beautiful. It is OT approved. And it honestly lasts a really long time. Like my seven-year-old still sits in her high chair that she had when she was six months old. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Go ahead. No, I agree. That's the one I use for my family. I have it at my house. Um, we got ours secondhand, and I encourage my families to make it a little more cost approachable to get them secondhand. Parents love to get rid of them when they're ready to get rid of them. Um, we work with families at all income levels 
too. And so my families that don't have those types of resources, something that's more cost approachable is really decking out the Ikea high chairs with like the yeah baby goods gear and stuff where you can add on the footrest and things like that. I mean, you can really deck out an Ikea high chair for like 60 bucks max and it's perfect. So Okay, so yeah, what are we the, looking for in a high chair? So we're looking for foot support. We're looking for something that has good trunk support. Um those are the two big things. That's really it. Um, they're going to put like a car seat type harness on them to cover their butts um, for safety regulation. I have families just use the um, waist strap, just the bottom one um, for safety, actually, because if a baby is choking, last thing you want to be doing is messing with shoulder straps. You want to be able mm-hmm. to just yank them out and start the Heimlich um, and also prevents baby from reaching forward a lot of times. So I really like the trip trap chair. It's one I use personally with the infant seat, with the infant insert. Um, because that footrest adjusts as they grow, it really is the best for positioning. Even like my babies who've got really low tone and different genetic conditions and things like that, I put them in that high chair for sure. Okay. And the reason to have a footrest is? Yes. So when you have good Uh, foot support, your trunk and your pelvis can do its job so that you can have good trunk control. And remember that readiness, we talked about sitting strong. You need to have good foot support so that your hips are ready to support, so your trunk's ready to support, so your neck and head control is good so that your airway can be protected. You need to support your feet so that your airway is protected, basically. There's a saying, what happens at the hips happens at the lips, because that's how connected our body is. And so it's important to have really good ergonomic positioning for feeding, especially for babies. Okay, beautiful. Okay. Yeah. All right. S- keep going. Did yeah. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. So starting at the beginning, right? So you just had a baby or you're two months in and you're like, so this was my experience. Breastfeeding never happened for me. It didn't go well. So I'm like, feed, solids will go better. So I started thinking of solids really early too. So maybe your baby's two months old and you're thinking about this. The first thing you can do is get them when they're two, three, four months old and they've got a little trunk control. You can prop them up with some towels or hold them on your lap while you're eating. Include them in meal times. That's really the first step to eating is including them in that family meal time and let them watch you eat. Let them watch you chew. That's the very first step to introducing solids is including them in your own mealtime. Get the high chair, get all your tools, get all ready. And then I really like to start, and Christine and I have some really good resources in the course just generally, but I really like to start with the food teethers with those fork mashables or some whole food purees. So that might be avocado or egg yolk or a sweet potato and a rib bone or a piece of cucumber that's cut up. Um, what other food teethers do you like? I know we differ a little bit there. Yeah. So I am on the camp of steak. So like a really mm-hmm. thick strip yeah. of steak or mm-hmm. meat um, or a bone as well, kind of like a cleaned off bone like we talked about earlier. Rib bones are great. Marrow bones are also really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, another could be um, <laughs> a thicker piece of liver that the baby can mm-hmm. just pick up with their fingers and suck and gnaw at. And mm-hmm. you'd be surprised, man, those babies, it doesn't matter that they don't have teeth. That piece of meat will be gray. It mm-hmm. Every single juice will be gone out of it because they're just like sucking on it so hard. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I know, I forget if you liked my carrot idea or not, but I'll do not the baby carrots, but the rain, I call them reindeer carrots. And then you cut off the thin tip, anything that's really thinner than your thumb, you cut it off at that point and give them that whole thing. Let them pick that up, that big old drumstick and bring it to their mouth and they'll bring it to the side and they'll gnaw on it and the tongue will follow and they'll be practicing their chewing. It's so cool to see. Um, and so I like to give them those, oh, a broccolini spear is great. Chop off a little florette. Um, and so I like to put a few of those food teethers on their tray and some of those whole few whole food purees and then just let them go to town. That's a great place to start. And I also want to remind you, this is an AAP recommendation. Um but this is just like standard for babies. This is all for practice until 12 months. All of their nutrition is really coming from milk. Um, I know, Christine, you bring in all of your great knowledge with all of the other nutrients and stuff, which is so out of my scope. And I always appreciate that. So does the dietitian we work with here locally. Um, but in terms of like sometimes my parents before one will put pressure on themselves for intake, for weight gain. Do you know what I mean? For hitting like nutritional caloric intake. That is not what solids are for before one. We're not gaining weight with solid foods. We're practicing and learning how to eat with solids before one. Now, I know you bring in all of the nutrients and micronutrients and stuff with like the sucking on the steak and the liver and the organ meats and things like that. But I just want to say that. Yeah. No, that's that's a really good point. So, okay, so I have two thoughts. The first mm -hmm. is, and I do think that we, we talked about this in the course, but so Leah looks at things through an occupational therapy lens and developmentally uh, working on the oral motor skills. And so when she says things like, okay, a carrot spear or a cucumber spear, um, <laughs> no, 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 I, um, I'm just because I want to clarify for listeners, we raw, correct? Yes, which I think is where you come in and say, I don't, you didn't like that because they were raw. <laughs> and I'm like, well, we're not eating totally, them. Totally. But like, exactly. but, but the juice then could be irritating to the tummy. And I hear all of that right. for sure. So you've educated me on this would be a better food either for gut health. And I try then to do those. And so instead of only thinking in my scope of what would be best for oral motor skills, I try to do, okay, what would be good for oral motor skills? And because of my education from you now and gut health and digestion, totally. right? Totally. So I, I just wanted to say, you know, there are two several aspects to feeding and one of them is developing oral motor skills. So I don't think there's anything wrong with baby, uh, using these food teethers to practice lateralizing their tongue and exploring what that feels like in their mouth. And so you can use those foods for that purpose. And, and so then that transitions into the, the part where we were talking about food is just for fun before one. That's, mm -hmm. that's like, you know, a really popular phrase in mm -hmm. today's parenting world. Mm -hmm. And there, that I think is so helpful to take the pressure off of parents, like you said, so that there's not so much anxiety about their intake and that kind of thing. And yeah. I think the other piece, there's another part to that, which is it does matter what we put into our, into our baby's bodies, because mm -hmm. at that point, they, there are certain nutrient needs that they're looking for, that their body uh, is in need of because they're growing so much that breast milk can no longer supply it. So this is where, you know, this is why I think Lee and I actually made a great team because I was able to come in and say, okay, let's make every food that we put into baby count 
if it's possible. So that's why we say start with egg yolks. Egg yolks are nutritionally dense. They have choline, they have zinc, they have copper, they have iron. Um, They have, you know, so the B vitamins, everything you can think of. Start with liver, um, strips of liver, strips of meat. Um, Start with bone marrow. Bone marrow is like a superfood for babies. And then, and again, this is where uh, this idea of, baby led weaning versus puree doesn't really work out. You know, it's, it's, it's not good to say, oh, I'm only going to do this and I'm only going to do that because certain foods are best served with a spoon. Bone marrow, I'm right. so sorry, but like you're going to have to spoon feed your baby bone marrow. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to spoon feed your baby an egg oh, yolk. Precious. Salt on yeah. It. yeah. Um, and so this is where you can kind of marry both methods of feeding your baby and focus on the oral developmental side of it, as well as the nutritional aspect of it, which is what our course talks about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but that combination, right? And so it's not just feeding. There are so many protocols out there, right? For me as a therapist of, you know, just run. If this kid's experiencing this, run this protocol and this will fix this. I have never met a protocol that I was 100% on board with. And so even baby led weaning, there's parts of it that I love and there's parts of it that I use and there's parts of it like the no spoon, like that doesn't make sense if we're going to do these nutrient dense, high value, precious puree, like it, it's easy to make bone marrow, but it's not easy to source it and it doesn't produce a lot. Right. So like what you've got, like you can mix it into something, but I didn't want my son painting his tray or his face with bone marrow. So yeah, I put it, I put it on a spoon and give him a little bite and we were done with it. Right. And so there's other purees like that too. And so can we be a little bit flexible on these protocol things? Um, and allow some purees into baby led weaning or, you know, can, to the traditional approach, can we bring in some food teethers to the traditional approach? Can we marry these things and look at true development and what's actually appropriate and best for babies instead of, you know, this makes money and sells books if we do it the purest way? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this, where did we stop with the, the, uh, the sequence of feeding babies. So we had we had stopped with I think the chair and babies sitting in chair and then and first foods, right? So yeah, like the foods. food teethers and doing some like yeah. um, fork mashables um, on the tray so that they can sensory explore around and kind of play. And some of the curries are going to make it into their mouth, and a lot will make it in the hair and the face. You know, God knows your ears somehow, um, like your ears, not the baby's ears, um, <laughs> and food teethers and all of that for oral motor skills. And then as they're starting to get the hang of it, you start to make those fork mashable purees, those dense whole foods, chunkier and let them start to explore with that and integrate that gag reflex and the chewing will turn on. It does. Um, When I say fork mashables, that's like a banana, an avocado, a cooked sweet potato, um, the ins- like an egg yolk mixed with butter, whatever it is. And I always tell my parents, like, you don't have to count fork mashes, but like every couple weeks we should be backing off five to 10 smashes, fork mashes, right? Just to have it be a little chunkier, a little bit more texture. And that to me is texture progression for most of my babies. Um, there's also then, I mean, that's how I do it. But again, you know, that's kind of a combo between, I don't know what purist baby led weaning would say about that, but again, I'm not a purist. Yeah. So 
I actually, I admit I never mashed anything for my kids very rarely. Um, I did more of like the, okay, we're just going to cut it into longer strips. The younger baby was, which, Mm -hmm. yeah. So we should address that. I think it's between six and eight ish months. Mm -hmm. It needs Mm -hmm. to be long, thin, uh, not necessarily thin, but like thick enough strips that baby can grab it with their hand and bring it to their mouth. Mm -hmm. With Um, their fist. Right. It's a fist. Yeah. Right. Right. They're not pinching yet. No, not quite yet. Mm Because that that developmental milestone hits approximately nine months, correct? Mm -hmm. The pincer Mm -hmm. grasp. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so then that's when you can start putting food, making food into a little bit smaller so that they can practice grabbing it. In this Mm -hmm. case, fish eggs are a really, really great practice if you can afford those. Um, But yeah, that's a really good option for that. Um, And then there is a point where you go back to... uh, is it bigger chunks or smaller chunks? Because I think it's like the toddler age or no, even smaller because toddlers then start shoving food into their mouth faster. So, and that's some of that pacing, right? Of, you know, if you've got a toddler who knows how to self pace, then you put the whole plate down. But if you don't and they're stuffing, then we give maybe two, three bites at a time. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, so we're progressing that fork mash bowl. And then when you see that munching and chewing going on, start giving them those bigger pieces like between that eight to 10 months when we're playing with that texture and chewing and see how they do. If they look really good and they're throwing stuff down. And also this is going to be food dependent. If they've been eating avocado and you've been giving strips of avocado and they've been biting chunks off of that avocado spear since they were seven months, six months, and they've been munching those and swallowing them, you're probably going to give little cubes of avocado right at nine months. And those are airway sized, right? However, they've been doing it. They've got the experience. So a lot of this is definitely like parent intuition as well. And so I really don't love sweeping like, yes, give cube sized chunks starting at nine months because I have seen one-year-olds be super unsafe with them. And I've seen six-month-olds rock them, you know? And so it just, it depends so heavily on the baby. Um, Yeah. I know that's not clear answers. No, 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 no. That it, it's always bio-individual. It always depends on the person and the context and the environment. So I I think that... Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's impossible to give. We're both of your kids because I only have the one, right? And so you both have multiple kids. Were your kids all different in their skills? Did you feel like you had to watch one more closely while the other one just took off? Or do you you remember? I know our brains just like erase at a certain point with certain information as mothers. Um, But do you remember like being more concerned over the feeding skills of one versus the other? Or did they all just like rock it with all these reflexes and jump right in? Or what do you all remember about like food progression, I guess, or giving them more challenging foods or feeling nervous to give them more challenging foods? Um, My youngest has, or I think she's actually recently come off of it. She's just, she turned three in June. Um, And so she, up until very recently was just like, would put way too much in her mouth. Mm -hmm. And, And then she would, she would just walk up to me or she'd be sitting next to me at the table and just like, she'd turn and spit it into my hand. And I'm like, <laughs> like, why are we doing this? <laughs> but um, I don't know. Aside from that, maybe I am just like motherhood and blanking on it. But I don't, I don't remember. 
Okay. They right. probably just that progressed. Might be most recently. They probably just progressed through though, and you intuitively mm-hmm. saw that they were doing well. So then you started giving them more challenging things. And as parents give see that they're doing well, the baby's doing well, and they give more challenging things, the parent gets feedback of, oh, they're safe. I can I can feel safe in giving them more. And so then you just together learn and feel safe and do more together. So my second was not very uh, food. Like she didn't really prefer solids until about 11 months. Okay. Uh, but I started at six months consistently with everything, but she wasn't quite as interested in food as my first was. And so I remember being really frustrated with that thinking like, I think at 11 months, she was still only eating like two meals a day, if that. And with my, with my first, he was eating a solid three meals a day already by 11 months. And yeah. my, my third has been the same way as well. Um, my third loved food that my two boys, um, they just loved, 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 loved to eat <laughs> and anything I put in front of them. Um, but, but then eventually she was okay with it and, uh, you know, started picking up on the skills a little bit more. And, and I actually, I did do baby led weaning with all three of them right from the start. It was something that I was fascinated with. And I mean, you and I have talked about this. I find feeding babies like one of the most interesting things in the world. I love watching babies eat. It's just like I'm obsessed with it. Um, it's so cool to see them. And yeah, well, we didn't say this, but one of the things that we should mention is because this is new for babies, anytime they put a new food in their mouth, that a flavor that they haven't had before or a texture and they make a face, parents tend to think that that means the baby doesn't like it. That doesn't mean that they don't like it. It just means they've never put it in their mouth before and it's a brand new sensation and experience. Um, you know, imagine yourself putting something new in your mouth for the first time and, you know, you might make a face. Yeah. Uh, so. It's called the wow face instead of an ooh face. Like that's not the a, wow, their okay. ooh face. That's a wow face. Because how different does that taste than breast milk or than formula, right? Like how much of a departure flavor wise is that than milk? And it, it's rocking their socks off. I want to comment though on your middle child too. Yeah. You okay. did the same just about, right, for yeah. all three. Yeah. And very different responses, response with your middle child. However, mm-hmm. you you kept the course and long-term had great results, all three, right? So yeah. you laid down the foundation. And even though she wasn't super into it, you use the flavor window, use the texture window, you let her baby lead wean all of her oral motor skills so that when she was ready to be motivated to eat, she had all of those skills ready to go. Oh, thanks. I feel you great. That? that was I an awesome compliment. Yeah. I just rocked it. Just rocked it as a parent. You did. You absolutely <laughs> did. Yeah. Go ahead, Christine. I was going to wrap us up, but... I'm wondering. Do you have another thing we, to say? Well, I'm wondering if we should just before we wrap up, real quick, talk about how to prevent the picky eating or the ro- the OT like root causes of picky eating. If we just want to, yeah. So that any parents that are listening that have kids between zero and two, mm-hmm. what can parents do to prevent picky eating? So we can do a whole podcast on this too. I want to just let parents know since we're about to wrap up here. I'm going to comment briefly on kind of like the root causes of picky eating. However, um, we have like a $7 picky eating course on our teachable site. So if you want to get really deep into this, do that, but I'm going to mention it, mention it here. This is a really big topic though. 
Um, root causes of picky eating, delayed salad introduction, missing those flavor and texture windows and those oral motor development skills. Um, or with older kids, if we're already picky, there might be sensory concerns, oral motor concerns. We might have a tether somewhere that we've never addressed or our tongue isn't lateralizing over or something doesn't feel safe. Kids are intuitive. So if eating doesn't feel safe because oral motor skills are not there, they're not going to want to put food in their mouth or they're only going to put food in their mouth that they know feels safe, like yogurt and dino nuggets. That's what feels safe. So that's where I'm going to stay. And I'm not putting anything else in my mouth. Makes sense. Um, ruptured relationships, insecure attachment, mealtime stressors can cause picky eating. We have to be in that, uh, you know, that sympathetic nervous system, that relaxed, like that rest and digest to be ready to eat and really like engage with mealtime. If a kid's in fight or flight and like all tense and not feeling super safe, they're not going to want to eat. I've seen kids that are in this state take a whole box of Cheetos into their bedroom and hide and eat there because they feel safest there, right? And so, and this doesn't happen in most of the homes I go. I mean, we do see families like that. However, most of the time this is the TV is too loud. Mom is super stressed out about eating and baby can feel it. Or no one's eating with baby. They're like putting a baby in the high chair and putting food down and then cleaning real quick because they've got stuff to do. Well, that's not that there's not a secure attachment there, but they're just not engaging with mealtime and baby. So that's a, a really heavy one that's got a lot to it, but I'll just leave it at that. Um, it can also be gut related, which is more your wheelhouse, um, Christine. I've definitely had picky eaters where all of these other things, boxes have been checked where I'm like, it's not any of these other things. Let's go get some gut microbiome stuff going and look, is it, you know, you know, again, this is more your scope. I'll let you talk to that. Well, we're just going to touch on this very, very briefly, but yeah. health-related concerns could definitely be a root cause or, yeah, a root cause of picky eating um, and making sure that the gut is properly developed can help prevent picky eating, uh, making sure that minerals are properly balanced, the, you know, kids are getting enough fermented foods so that they have all of the good bacteria in their gut, things like that. Okay. That's so interesting to me and something I'm learning more about recently. Again, because out of my scope, I'm checking off all my other picky eating box and like, what could it be? And it is. It's um, gut health. So I'm learning more more about that, which is why it's so important to collaborate like this. So thank you all for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I think this is such an interesting topic. You know, like you said, we probably could have gone down 15 different rabbit trails I know. and um, <laughs> kept talking, but there's so much here and there's so much that um, hopefully one of the things Christine and I want to do with this show is to help um, put out some information that we wish we had when we first had kids. Mm -hmm, um, so mine, my oldest is 12 years old. Like I wish I had had this sort of information when, when he was born. Cause while I did do baby led weaning, um, I, I had, th there was just a lot of mixed information back then. And, um, you know, and I didn't have the nutritional 
aspect of it under wraps at that point. And um, so much of baby of what's pushed with baby led weaning has nothing to do with nutrition. Um, and so there's just a lot, there's a lot of information out there that is confusing, I think. Mm-hmm. So um, hopefully this episode is helpful to parents um, and especially for people who feel like maybe they are at a um, kind of standstill or they've kind of hit a wall with feeding their kids. And then yeah. to have the uh, knowledge that there is somebody out there who can be kind of professionally helpful, mm-hmm. um, that's that's really um, important too. You know, when it's so, so important for parents to recognize where they're not abilities, because I think parents are way more able than we than we realize. But I think when, you know, when it's when it's good for everybody involved to kind of get extra help or get outside help. Yeah. Um. And so I think that's where somebody like you would step in. And I just really appreciate you coming on and giving us your time and talking over all of this. Yes, of course. And don't be afraid to, if you have that gut feeling that you need that extra support, reach out. Even if you go, sometimes your pediatrician will say, absolutely, here's a list of resources, but sometimes they'll say, wait and see. You keep reaching out and you find your team and your support. The worst, worst, worst thing that will happen is that you will have an evaluation and that provider will say, everything looks great here. Keep doing what you're doing. That is the absolute worst thing that will happen, you know, is that you're going to rule out your worry and you're going to be confirmed that you're on the right track. So um, don't hesitate to reach out to providers in your area if you feel that gut instinct that you need to. That's a really good point. Yeah. Before we sign off, Leah, can you tell our listeners where people can find you? Yeah. Um, Nurtured Pediatrics. Peds.com is our website. There's a lot of blogs and information on there. We have a teachable page to nurtured peds, um, nurtured pediatrics at teachable.com. That's where Christine and I's course is and our cookbook. We have a picky eating course on there. We also have a course about teaching kids to manage emotions too. So there's a bunch of different things outside of feeding that we have on there. Um, On our website, there's other podcasts that I've been on. Um, Our Instagram handle is Nurtured Pediatrics. Um, We are so busy seeing kids. Full disclosure, we're not on our social media channels much anymore. So if you do want to get a hold of us, I would use our website um, or use our um, probably our office email, office at nurturedpeds.com. That's going to be faster than DMing us. I'm trying my best to get on Instagram at least once a month and and go through DMs and things like that, but that's not the best way. Um, Christine and I do offer on-demand support, too, for feeding families, Um, and you can look at that through the the Teachable website as well, which I'm sure will all be be linked for you. Yeah. Yeah. One more time before we sign off, I just want to talk about the course and the cookbook. So uh, I briefly mentioned the course at the beginning, and there is an ad for it as well. The course uh, has a cookbook to accompany it, and the cookbook does wonders. We've had so many people uh, really tell us how much they enjoy it. And basically, it breaks foods up into the first 12 months of baby's life. So it tells you at four months old, these are the most nutrient-dense and OT approved foods to feed your baby. Um, Then at six months, we move on to give you the next stage of foods and so on. And then after 12 months, there are recipes for the whole family in the book, including dessert recipes and dinner recipes. And some of these are Leah and I's favorites and the ones that we use regularly in our own home. 
Um, so definitely give the cookbook a check, uh, check it out. <laughs> and yeah, um, I think that's, I think that's it. We're ready to wrap up, Corey. What do you say? I say, okay, let's wrap it up. <laughs> Thanks again, Thanks. ladies. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you so much, Leah. Thank you, Christine. Thanks thank for listening, to everybody guys. listening. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to Modern Ancestral Mamas. Check out the show notes for the resources. You can find Christine on Instagram at Nourish the Littles and online at nourishthelittles.com. You can find Corey on Instagram at fornutrientsake and online at fornutrientsake.com. Follow us on Instagram at Modern Ancestral Mamas. expressed in this episode are those of the guests. They do not reflect Corey and I's and Modern Ancestral Mama's personal views and opinions. We do not take responsibility for any ideas expressed during the podcast interview. The information contained in this show is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be medical advice and should not replace your relationship with your healthcare practitioner.